Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the Institute of their guests. I'm really fortunate to be joined by my co-host, Dr. Rachel Frank, who's a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well. Thanks, Pete. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Today, we have a really special episode. We've invited Professor Hiroyuki Sagaya as a guest. Dr. Sagaya is well-known to most members of our society, but for those of you who do not know him, uh, Dr. Sagaya is in practice in uh, Tokyo and Japan in uh, Chiba University. Um, he's well-known throughout the world for his arthroscopic techniques, and so we're really lucky to have him on. Dr. Sagaya, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hello. It's so let's start... Let's start at the beginning. Tell us how you first became interested in shoulder surgery. Um, actually, I was and I used to be a baseball player, and I got a shoulder injury when I when I was in university, and uh, that was maybe about maybe 30, 30, more than thirty years ago. And at the time, there's nobody, no, there's nobody who who I can rely on. So that's why I started doing shoulder to solve this baseball problem. Therefore, shoulder elbow. Enjoy. What position did you play in baseball? A uh, pitcher. So you were a pitcher and then you developed a shoulder injury and thought there was just no one that could help you. Yes, that's, that's right. Yeah. Now you've become widely recognized. You know, I know Pete and myself look at your work and, and what you've done. And I think we're both in awe of what you've been able to accomplish and continue to publish on and talk about and describe. But you, you're really recognized for your arthroscopic techniques. How did you learn arthroscopy and how did you become interested not only in treating shoulder injuries, but specifically with arthroscopy? Yeah. And, um, you know, the, uh, my, uh, the, the most, my priority is to, to solve the problem in a baseball player. So the, uh, for, uh, regarding surgery, no open, open surgery is not, the, not a choice. So that's why I started the arthroscopic arthroscopic surgery and also I ran the arthroscopic surgery from the visiting you know, a lot of big guys in, in the US like uh, Steve Schneider and uh, Burkert and also that their video and uh, and also that in, in my country there's some uh, you know the elder doctors then uh, I developed the arthroscopic skill by myself and then uh, Actually, I started the shoulder arthroscopy back in 1996. That's my first case. And uh, 1998, I decided to do everything scope. So the, you know, the, because I need to treat the baseball player, so that's why the open surgery is not a choice. So that's why I decided everything do done by scope. So the, during that time, there's a lot of uh, problem. You know, actually, some doctors started the already started the arthroscopic uh, stabilization, and uh, of course, in the early times, so there are a lot of failures. So that during the uh, JSS Japan Shoulder Society meeting, the uh, they uh, they the many doctors start to you know limit the indication of the shoulder stabilization arthroscopically. So that's why, but even though I decided to do everything out of scope, so that's why the, I need to, how should I treat, how can I treat the, this patient out of scope theory? So then uh, I need to see the granoid shape. Then 
okay, let's see the granular shape. So remove the human head, and then we can see the unfaced view of the granoid. And uh, that became the uh, my first study in the JBGS back in 2003. So, you know, the I decided to do everything autoscopically. So that's why the, uh, you know, uh, that's um, that's uh, that's why the I uh, I invented a lot of you know new technologies and uh, new ideas and I uh, published many papers. Now you talked a lot about just in there about things you've accomplished from an instability perspective. I think this is a place where you've made a lot of substantial contributions. I mean, you mentioned the JBGS paper on you know the shape of the glenoid, the morphology of the rim. Probably the thing that one of the things that is really turned a lot of heads are the your the results of your repair of bony bank cards, which I think is a topic you've really covered in depth. Tell us mm -hmm. what you got what got interested interested in this at first. Okay, so the, when I see the patient uh, who had a sixteen years old sixteen year old lady, uh, he she's she was a judo player and uh, she had a big fragment and. Uh, that was maybe about the year of 2000 or something to maybe i remember 2000 may to year of 2000 and uh, before that i removed the every fragment to mobilize the ligament well but you know she had a very big fragment so if i remove the fragment they're gonna be you know the creative stability is very difficult so that's why i decided to utilize the fragment. So that's why that's my my first bone event repair. That was in May to year 2000, May 2000. And uh, that was very successful, fortunately. So that's why after that, I I uh, decided to uh, preserve the every fragment and incorporate fragment to the repair, even the, uh, you know, regardless the size of the fragment. So that's my uh, my first body banker procedure, and I published in the body banker short term outcome to to the JBGS of two thousand five, and also a longer term outcome two thousand fifteen. Now, in addition to your incredible work on the glenoid and morphology and bony bank arts, you've conducted so many other important research studies, and perhaps among the most influential has been your work on rotator cuff repair healing. Mm -hmm. as, as you know, and, and as we know, your classification scheme, um, scheme is widely used and your study on healing after double row repair has been cited over a thousand times, which is incredible. Mm -hmm. Tell us what initially interests you in the cuff and what do you think the future holds for the cuff? You know, where will we be in five to 10 years with regard to rotator cuff repair and healing rates? Mm -hmm. Okay. So the, uh, actually I was, and, uh, I attended, I've been, uh, Academy attending academy academy meeting from the 1996, and I saw the situation in the United States a lot, and uh, maybe late 90s or around the year of 2000, you know, the old arthroscopic rotor cuff repair is very rare. So actually, the many guys started the old arthroscopic from the year of 2000, and uh, and at the time, and I uh, thank you very much. Uh, yes, so the, in the beginning, so the, I'm the, maybe I started the Siguro for the rotary cuff repair and then, uh, eventually I shifted to double row. And in the beginning, uh, the, my concern was how, how 
cannot assess my uh, you know repair integrity. So the I I checked every papers published papers, but there's no you know uh, reliable criteria. So that's why I started the decide to make a uh, classification on the the, uh, the repair integrity, and uh, that's my beginning. And uh, so fortunately, you know, everybody's using it like recently, and uh, that's fine. But uh, you know, that's uh, you know, that's uh, I started doing that to assess the, my repair uh, integrity. So the you know the after that we did a, you know anatomical study. Maybe you know, you guys know that, and uh, we published in uh, JBS also the back in two thousand seven eight. And anatomical study, footprint study of the supraspinatus and the infraspinatus. So by doing this research, we can and we understand the, what is the most ideal rest tension anatomical repair. So the, the, before that, everybody think that the supraspinatus incest to the superior portion, infraspinatus incest to the posterior portion of rest, uh, greater tuberosity. But uh, we found that the infraspinatus incest to the greater portion of the uh, Greater tuberosity and the supraspinatus incest to the even to the very limited anterior portion of the greater tuberosity and also limited to the rest of tuberosity, uh, even incest to the rest of tuberosity. So that's why I think that this anatomical paper contributed to improve the repair integrity after surgery for uh, I think many uh, contributed contribute to the many doctors. And uh, you know, so the I think that maybe we already solved the uh, the repairable rotary cuff repair uh, based on the anatomical study and the other things and also the lot of you know good instrumentation like a suture anchors and uh, many things so the the problem was the uh, irreparable one irreparable one but uh Mihata published in uh, you know, super capsule reconstruction so that we can solve the uh, using that technique for the irreparable patient and also, we uh, started using the reverse shoulder arthroplasty from 2014. So that's why, in the future, I think that right now the you know almost uh, majority of the we can cover the majority of patient who has a rotator cuff problem. But uh, I think the super capsular reconstruction is we need to use an autograft to obtain a thick graft. But in the United States, I think I know the you know thin uh, dimer R graft is uh, very popular. But I think that that's too thin to you know uh, obtain the uh, longer term good results. So right now we are uh, doing the uh, new researches to uh, utilize the uh, thick uh, R graft from the uh, animal. So this is not uh, uh, not yet clinical use, but uh, I think maybe in future we can utilize that. So that's why the uh, you know reparable rotary cuff tear should be. I think it, it's okay that in future we need to manage the uh, irreparable muscle rotary cuff tear patient who has a problem, and uh, but not indicated for reverse. So the you know, we need to do a lot of study from now, even from now. I, think. I wanted to follow up with you. You mentioned your 
an anatomical paper, the paper study with Mochi, the U.S. published with Mochizuki, where you, again, as you mentioned, demonstrated just how different from our traditional understanding, just how much larger the infraspinatus attachment was and how much smaller it was. Now the supranatus is more anterior and medial and the infraspinatus is most of the tuberosity. Has this, I mean, this has really changed the way that I think about the rotator cuff. Has this changed the way that you perform your repairs? Yeah, actually, that that didn't change. But, you know, we confirmed that. You know, during surgery, we recognize that. I recognize that if the, if the patient has large tear, when we try to bring the posterior cuff to front, that's easy. But uh, retracted the uh, superior cuff to bring the uh, anatomical, bring back to the anatomical position is a little bit difficult. So that's why I think the anatomical study, like... Uh, Crack, crack and Harriman's paper is, I don't think it's it's real. So that's why the, we uh, did uh, this kind of, this anatomical study. And uh, so the results of the anatomical study didn't change my way of repairing, but the, you know, we can confirm the uh, what, what we were doing was correct. You know, one thing that I think would be helpful for our listeners is having um, having your perspective on what advice you would give to young surgeons to have a career, I think even, at, you know, a percentage point as successful as your career. I, I was, you know, I was just thinking to myself, it's amazing that we're even chatting with you. I'm a little bit um, starstruck just to be able to speak with you on this podcast. And I think many of our our listeners will feel the same way getting to hear you, you know, speaking with us on a, in a casual conversation, but what advice would you have for young surgeons early in their career, perhaps trainees, residents, fellows, et cetera, to try to have an impactful career to similar, you know, or at least somewhat similar to what you've been able to do. I think the, you know, young, young doctors uh, need to have experience, but you know, the experience we have, uh, was you know piled up in uh, you know using them maybe twenty years thirty years, so that's why the uh, the in order to get this kind of experience in a short time is the best way is to observe surgery. So the you know the you you need to observe surgery always you guys and uh, observing surgery of your mentors, but you know also you need to visit other famous doctors like a Richard Frank. So I think. That's very important. So the, actually, I had a lot of input from the Steve Schneider, Barry Sabor, and Steve Burkert, and also Japanese doctors. And also when I travel uh, outside, I saw other guys' surgery. And, uh, and also the discussion with this, uh, you know, notable guys and very, very instructive. So that's why the, uh, you know, the, I, you know, you know the, you need to, you know, minimize the period you have the uh, experience and the knowledge by observing or, you know, speaking with other famous notable doctors. That's the best way. And also, you need to read a lot of papers. I mean, I know our readers, or excuse me, our listeners won't be able to see this, but I'm blushing over here. So that was, um, first of all, what, what an answer and, and so kind of you. Um, it's just, again, it's, it's amazing to hear your advice as a young surgeon myself, and I'm sure Pete's thinking the same thing. Um, and, you know, reading the papers, hopefully contributing to the literature and watching amazing surgeons do their work. 
uh, I think really is influential for sure. Mm. Yeah. And also the one more thing, one more thing, the most important thing, one, one of the important thing is the, as I uh, did a, a clinical research in the past, if you face the uh, problem, clinical problem, you need to try to solve it, the problem by yourself, by reading papers, asking expert, and then uh, you find a new thing, you need to, you know, publish, present, and you know, publish papers. That's very important. I wanted to ask you about that because I think one of the one of the themes in you know what we talked about with all of the work you've accomplished is that you you said I encountered this clinically and then I studied it and either I confirmed what I suspected to be true or I found something that that was new or that was different. For instance, I found, you know I discovered that it was easier to pull the cuff around the back and. Then we confirm with an anatomical study that the infraspinatus had a different attachment than what was previously known. Or, you know, I I had the suspicion that we shouldn't be cutting out the bone fragments because we were narrowing the glenoid. And then when I started repairing them, all of a sudden I discovered that they could heal and that then we could restore the initial anatomy of the glenoid. So it seems like for you, a critical aspect has been recognizing intraoperatively or during your clinical practice, you know, that there's a there's that you you've you've had an ability to observe problems or observe things that maybe other people have not seen how are you doing that do you have do you have a specific methodology for that do you have like a system of notes you keep do you have um tell tell us about that because it seems it seems like that's the germanist so for so much of your success um actually as i said before the i so i'm seeing many many patients you know, in the U.S. and you know, physician's assistant follow the patient sometimes, but I see. I need to see. I need to follow every patient every time. So that's why I got a lot of information from the patient before surgery and also after the surgery. So that's why the I think that's I'm very that makes me very very busy. But uh, to me, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And it's a harm. So then. Uh, I can, I see imaging, pre-op imaging, I see the pre-op function, and also I see, I do surgery, and after surgery, I see the many patients complain like, uh, you know, night pains, neck pains, uh, or some doing very well, and other stuff. And also, that I uh, have a strong connection with the physiotherapist, physical therapist, and they help me a lot after hospital care, and also the pre-op assess, assessment, so. That's why this is the, yeah, it's not just surgery, I think. The shoulder surgeon need to see everything. That's my idea. So do you have a physical therapist that works with you in clinic or do you have a physician's assistant? Who, is, who yeah. assists you in clinic then to see that many patients? Uh, I don't have physician's assistant systems. So we don't have physician's assistant system, but I know we have the, a lot of physio. So very, very reliable physio. As I said before, the, my, uh, the, uh, starting point is treat the, how to treat the baseball player. So that's why the physio for this kind of a top athletes like a baseball and other sports is very, very important. So that's why I'm a very strong relationship with the physiotherapist. And also I have more than 10, 10, 15 physio in, in my clinic. So I'm working with them every day. 
so the communication with the physio and uh you know they can they give me they give me a lot of information about the patient also that i can give them the information so that's why a very good exchange what a team and that's what it takes to get the results so it's uh, something that all of us can look look and try to emulate if we can you know, one thing that Pete and I like to ask um, the superstars that come on this podcast is kind of a, a final wrap-up question. Um, and the question is, if you could have dinner with anyone from history, dead or alive, who would it be and where would you have dinner? <laughs> okay. Oh. Okay. Everybody, everybody who invite me, and also everybody who joined my clinic and the surgery center. That's that's a very good answer. Nice, nice, and accommodating for everyone. Where where would you have the dinner? Would you have it someplace local um, near you, or someplace in in a different country? Where where would you have it? Anywhere, anywhere. I don't know the place doesn't matter, and uh, meeting meeting people, meeting doctors, meeting visitors, meeting teachers, and uh, having conversations is very important over beer. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, I think that's all the time we have for today's podcast. Both Pete and I want to thank you so much for joining us and for spending the time with us in your incredibly busy schedule. Um, we are so thrilled to have had you, and I think our listeners are really going to find a lot of, um, you know, they're going to really enjoy listening to this. So for all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.